0: Romans 17. Uh, this is, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to look at this verse a little bit differently than I normally preach through something. Uh, in fact, I almost feel like I'm, as I was preparing, I almost feel like I'm, I'm uh, teaching through it, and preaching is teaching, but more so this time. And um, it's, it, uh, remember we talked about, or I said to you, Romans is deep and wide? That, that this, is, this is rich. Well, verse 17 is a good example of how deep and wide the this, this scripture or the book of Romans is. It wasn't necessary or isn't necessarily an easy verse to, um, I'll use the word dissect, uh, but there's there's phenomenal truth here uh, that I hopefully <laughs> I'll be able to communicate to you. So as we look at uh, faith to faith, Romans 1.17, I want to point out two things. The, there's the Historical significance of this verse, and the majority of the time, I'm going to talk about the interpretive challenges of this verse. And uh, as I prayed that it may not only challenge us, but indeed will leave change because of it. So, first of all, the the uh, historical significance. That's my uncle. I don't know if I've ever showed you that picture before. No, that's actually that's a picture of Martin Luther. That's who that is. This is the historical significance. I I don't know the story well enough to remember dates and times, so I'm going to read part of it. But I want you to. I want this is this is a very significant verse in church history because of Martin Luther. He was born in Eislieb, about 120 miles from present-day Berlin. He was raised in Mansfield, where where his father worked at the local copper mines. Hans, that's his father, sent Martin to Latin school, and then when Martin was 13 years old, to the University of Erfurt to study law. There, Martin earned both his baccalaureate and master's degree in the shortest time allowed by university statute. Obviously, he was pretty smart, okay? There was uh, some innate abilities he had that I am lacking, but he, had, he was able to absorb a lot of information and, and be able to uh, put it back out and understand it. He was so adept at public debates that he earned the nickname the philosopher. Then in 1505, his life took a dramatic change. As the 21-year-old Luther fought his way through a severe thunderstorm on the road to Erfurt, a bolt of lightning struck the ground near him, and Luther screamed, Help me, St. Anne, I will become a monk. The conscientious Luther fulfilled his vow. He gave away all his possessions and entered monastic life. Luther was extraordinarily successful as a monk. He plunged into prayer, fasting, ascetic practices, going without sleep, enduring bone-chilling cold without a blanket, by whipping himself. He spent hours praying, confessing, going through the Roman church rituals. He nearly wore out his confessors with his daily confessions. As he later commented, if anyone could have earned heaven by life of a monk, it is I. Luther remarked, or I should say later, when Luther earned his doctorate in Bible and began teaching at the University of Wittenberg through the book of Romans, it was this verse, verse 17, arrested his attention. It caused him great anger toward God because his eyes were not drawn to the word faith but to the word righteous. After all, who could live by faith but those who were already righteous, Luther remarked. I hated that word, the righteousness of God, by which I have been taught according to this custom and the use of all teachers, that God is righteous and he punishes the unrighteous sinner. The young Luther could not live by faith because he was not righteous and he knew it. So hopefully you can see that this is the the internal drama and tension that is going on inside of Luther. Luther when he's coming to this, this point in time in his life, and he's, and he's looking at this verse. He wrote, It is though it really was not enough that miserable sinners should be inter- eternally damned with sin, laid upon them by the law of the Ten Commandments. Now must God go and add sorrow upon sorrow, and even through the gospel itself, bring his justice and wrath to bear? I raged in this wise with a fierce and disturbed conscience. He was angry. He was angry because he just didn't understand. In other words, he writes, or explanation, in other words, he's saying, at last meditating day and night by the mercy of God, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that through which the righteous live by a gift from my God, namely, by faith. Here I felt as if I were entirely born again and entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. This is the point. Martin Luther learned that God was, must intervene and give something to us that he is and what we are not. God must grant something to us that he has and we can never come to be. Something we can never create or generate in ourselves. That something, of course, is his righteousness through faith. This launched the reformation you may have heard of that the encyclopedia Britannica explains it briefly this way a 16th century movement for the reform of abuses in the Roman Catholic Church its greatest leaders undoubtedly were Martin Luther and John Calvin having far-reaching political economic and social effects The Reformation became the basis for the founding of Protestantism. Why are we here today? Because of the Reformation. There's a historical significance that happened because of verse 17 in one man's life. And what's interesting is Paul had a similar experience to that. Without going into all the details, I just want to read what he wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8-9, he said, Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, I gave it all up, and count them all as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Luther had to come to the end of himself and realize all these things he was doing wasn't earning, you cannot earn Christ, you cannot earn salvation, you cannot earn righteousness. Righteousness. And that's what Paul's saying. In fact, Paul goes on in verse 9, he says, And be found in Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. It's really the the same experience that Luther went through. The historical significance is we are here today because of the Reformation. Now, wasn't that interesting? I thought it was. And, and uh, um, to see how Scripture, let's put it this way. It was true in the 16th century. It was true when Paul wrote it, and it's true today. It's significant. Who, who do you know whose life could be changed or maybe your life has been changed, and what impact are you having? What difference are you making? This is very significant in, uh, Martin Luther, in Paul's life as well as Martin Luther's life. Now let's look at some, some of the interpretive challenges. I'm just going to go kind of phrase by phrase. For in it. I already told you that it is the gospel, you look back at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that's looking back to the gospel found there in verse 16. For in it, for in the gospel. So it's a continuation of the thought of verse 16. In verse 16, remember we talked about the person of the gospel, of course it's Christ. Also in 16, you will see the power of the gospel, which is God. And you saw the purpose of the gospel, which is salvation. And now in verse 17, we see the provision of the gospel, which is righteousness. So we see that it's a flow, it's a continuation of what we've already talked about. And as he he brings this letter to a conclusion, it's an introduction. This is the first time that righteousness of God is mentioned here in Scripture or in Romans, and there, there are the, the root word used for righteousness is used 60 times in this book, and so you have justice, justified, righteousness, righteous, so it's an introduction here to the righteousness of God. In fact, let me, let me take this a little further. As we read through the book of Romans, because you'll see the words just, justifier, justification, and uh, righteous, and righteousness. As you read through and see that this is the primary theme of the book of Romans. As you read through Romans, and, and hopefully you are reading, taking the time to read through Romans, this, you'll, you'll, you'll say, oh, the righteousness of God. Oh yeah, I see that again, it's the righteousness of God. It's demonstrated, it's, 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 it's presented over and over and over. This is the primary theme of the book, the righteousness of God. But with that, there's a secondary theme, the justification of man. Again, again th- this is, a, uh, this is the, the word, the same word is used for righteousness is also used for justification. Now, justification is just as if I never sinned. God has, on the, on the ledger, has gone and erased your sin and he has written in righteous. So the primary theme is the righteousness of God. You're going to see it over and over and over and over and over and hopefully we'll continue to call attention to that as we go through the book. But you cannot miss the secondary theme is the justification of man. God is righteous He has provided for us his righteousness because in and of myself, I don't care how many times I whip myself, how much sleep I lose, or whatever it may be, I cannot gain righteousness except through Christ, which is the justification of man. He's declared us righteous. So it's an introduction to the theme. Verse 16, he says, to everyone who believes, verse 17, revealed from faith to faith, the justification of man. The third thing is, for in it, it's also a transition. It's a transition there from verse 17, from the righteousness of God revealed, to verse 18, the, the, the uh, wrath of God is revealed. Now look at, look at the verse, so you can see what I'm talking about. So, verse 17, for in the righteousness of in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Verse eighteen. Now again, verse seventeen is the end of the introduction. Now he's getting into the body of the work. And verse eighteen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So this is a transition. It's from the righteousness of God to introduce us now as we go through the body of the work through the rest of the book. And this specifically right here starts off with the unrighteousness of men. So it's an introduction. I'm sorry. It's a continuation. It's an introduction. It's a transition. For in it. Now that wasn't real challenging except to identify to keep in mind it, it has to do with the gospel. For in the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. The righteousness of God. Um, I'll just be honest with you, this is, a, this is a, more of a challenge than you would think. I'll put it this way. It was more in a, of a challenge than I thought it would be. The meaning of the expression righteousness of God has been discussed, debated throughout church history. There has been a considerable amount of literature dedicated just to the meaning of that phrase, the righteousness of God. John R. Stott, in his commentary, The Message of Romans, suggests this. And he, he kind of summarizes what everybody was writing about. He suggests this. There's three explanations of the phrase, and then he comes to this conclusion. I'm going I'm to tell you about those three explanations. And he comes to this conclusion. For myself, I have never been able to see why we have to choose and why all three should not be combined. So that's, that's why I'm going to present these three primary ways of looking at the righteousness of God. All of them are valid. I, I'm going to put a little more emphasis on one because I think that's where it belongs, but all these explanations are valid. They can, they can actually stand alone, but together it makes more sense. First of all, it is a divine attribute. Well, that's, a, that's right away when you see that, when you see the righteousness of God, that's, that's the first thing that should grab you. It's an attribute of God. It's one of the things, one of the things that makes God God. God is righteous. He's always right. He always do right. He, it's that righteousness that He declares us to be righteous, that's through which we're justified. Just like holiness, God is holy. Well, part of the demonstration of His holiness is His righteousness. He is righteous. He's not a holy and righteous, he's loving, he's truth, he's powerful. These are the, the, when we talk about the attributes of God, these are the things that make God, God. Well, and, and I think this is just, obviously, this jumps off at me, off the pages, God is righteous. Of course he is. That's one of his attributes, it's one of the things that makes God, God. So it's a divine, it's a, it's, it's a divine attribute. That which is inherent in his nature. God is righteous. The second thing we see there, righteousness of God is a divine activity. And and let me explain it this way. Let me put it this way. It's a declaration and it's a demonstration. Okay, it's a divine activity. Only God can declare you righteous. Right? That's a... I, I, can, I, can, I can say to you, oh, you're righteous. It doesn't mean a thing. <laughs> but God can declare you righteous. So when we talk about the divine activity, he, can, he, he and he alone can de- de- declare us righteous. But also it's demonstrated. God set forth Christ to demonstrate his righteousness. I, I, can, I can try, I can attempt to demonstrate righteousness to you. But it'll be so imperfect, it'll be ridiculous. God demonstrates his righteousness. That's that's a divine activity. In Romans chapter 3, verses 25, or actually I'm going to read verse 21 to 26, and, and, and listen for these key words. Justified and demonstrate. Remember, justification is a declaration. Demonstrate is a demonstration. It says, But now the righteousness of God, verse 21 in Romans chapter 3, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified, declared righteous, freely by his grace to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's a declaration. Then verse 25 and 26. Whom God set forth as a propitiation. Now, I love the word propitiation. I've mentioned this many times. God was satisfied. Christ satisfied his righteous demands. And I I add to this, I like to add to this. Christ exhausted God's wrath for you and me. He is righteous, whom God set forth as a propitiation propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and a justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's a declaration, it's a demonstration, and in those verses, what do you see? The primary theme or righteousness of God, secondary theme, justification of man. So we see, we see it already. So it's a divine attribute, it's a divine activity, but even more significantly, I'm sorry, it is a divine gift. It's a divine gift. The righteousness from God is a divine gift. God did for sinful man what he could not do for himself. Okay. Some of you are familiar with this verse, but this this one really hits the nail on the head. Isaiah 64, 6. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. See, all my rightness is just like filthy rags. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes, For he, that is God, made him, that is Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It is a, it is a righteousness he provided through faith in Christ alone. So, the righteousness of God. Of God. It's all of these. These could stand alone. I think, I, if I, In case I forget to mention this later. Because the nuances of, of the Greek, and some of it I understand, some of it I don't understand, but the word wav, of there, can, the word of, I think I said love, the word of can and maybe should be translated from. Now, now listen to what it says. The righteousness righteousness from God. It's a divine gift. Some translations, not in our New King James, but in some translations actually use it. The righteousness from God. It's a divine ad- attribute, it's a divine activity, and, and, and it is a divine gift. The word revealed just simply uh, is revealed uh, the word translated "revealed" can be translated, or or means this: uh, to lift the veil, uh, to uncover, to take off, to reveal, is revealed. Um, let, me, let me give you two illustrations, to so you can get a, kind of get a picture. Of, I mean, of it, the the righteousness of God is righteousness from God is revealed. The bridal veil. Often in very traditional weddings, the bride will wear a veil as part of the wedding ceremony. She walks down the aisle toward the front of the church where her future husband stands. Of course, he's totally unworthy of her, but he stands there, his knees knocking anyway. The pastor is about to ask that one question that her father has been practicing faithfully for numerous weeks, her mother and I, her mother and I, her mother and I. Finally, the moment comes. The pastor asks, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And the bride's father, in total confusion, says, my MasterCard and I. (laughs) He lifts the veil, leans over and gives her a kiss on the cheek, and hands her over to the groom. She turns with an open face toward the groom as she has been symbolically released from her parents. She has now been revealed to him. The veil is gone. It has been revealed. Let me give you a second one. The temple veil. As you are aware, like in the tabernacle and in the temple, there is two chambers within the temple there's the holy place this is, this is where you have the table of showbread the golden candlesticks and the altar of incense table of showbread, bread of life uh, golden candlesticks light of the world the altar of incense this is the, the continuing intercessory prayers of Christ on our behalf Those, these are symbolic of all these things that are going on and then right in front of or in back of the altar of incense is what's called the veil it separates the two rooms. I'll talk about the second room first, but it separates the two rooms. We don't have any biblical evidence of this other than of, of what this veil was like, other than uh, what it was made from in, in the Bible. But Josephus, a, a, a Jewish historian, says it was four inches thick. He says that it's replaced or was replaced every year. He also tells us that if horses were tied, or harnessed to each side of the veil, it could not be torn in part, apart. It was thick. It was it was beautiful. The gold and purple and blue, all the colors in it. It was extraordinary. So I come in, table show bread, candlestick, altar of incense, the veil. Now the high priest is the only one that could go on the other side of that veil. He went in once a year. Now that one day, he went in three times. He went in for uh, the priests, he went in for the people, he went in for the leadership. He went in behind the veil. Now behind the veil, you, of course, you had the Ark of the Covenant, but the most important object in the uh, Holy of Holies is not the Ark of the Covenant, but what is sitting on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which is called the mercy seat. And he would go and then sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of these people. That was once a year. You, if you tried to go in behind the veil, you would die. In fact, if the high priest regarded any sin in his heart or if there was sin in his life and he went in, he would be be struck dead. Again, there's no biblical proof for this, but tradition tells us that he actually had bells that were on the bottom of his robe and a rope tied to his leg. And if they stopped hearing the bells moving, they pulled them out. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a great story. The point is, only the high priest could enter there. You and I, common man, could not do this. So here we have the temple veil. The righteousness of God was once veiled as a mystery. The thick, thick curtain separated human, humanity from the holy of holies, basically separated humans from God. But the gospel, that is, the death, remember this, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has taken off the veil. In fact, as Christ hung on the cross, remember he said, it is finished? It is believed at that time, at that moment, the veil in the temple of Jerusalem, that could not be torn apart by horses, was separated, which separated the holy place from the people, ripped from the top to the bottom as if an invisible hand of God reached down and lifted the veil. The mercy seat, the Holy of Holies was veil was removed and suddenly all that seemed to be mysterious and ceremonial becomes real. See, the righteousness of God has been revealed in the gospel. For in it, The veil, the veil has been lifted so that we now have the full revelation of God through the face of Christ, as it were, revealed to us. And just what has been revealed, Paul writes in verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. Paul wrote there in 2nd Corinthians 4:6. he says, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's been revealed. We see that in the bridal veil. We see that in the temple veil. And what has revealed it? The gospel. From faith to faith. Many explanations have been given to this phrase. Some of them have been that have then mentioned are fanciful while others are at least attempting to address what it means from faith to faith. I'm going to share two of them with you and then I'm going to tell you what I believe this from faith to faith means. One that has been re- proposed, it's the spread of, of faith by evangelism. In other words, from my faith to your faith to someone else's faith to someone else's faith. In other words, it's the spread of evangelistic faith. In other words, from one to another to another to another to another. That's plausible. But I don't think that catches the, the, the essence of what Paul is talking about from faith to faith. Some have put that it's a reference to faith's origin. In other words, from God's faithfulness to our faith. God's faithfulness always comes first, and ours is a response of faith to his. Uh, y- yes, I mean, it's, it's a, you know, we can pick at things. I don't think that's the essence of it, but plausible. Okay? Possible. This is what I believe. From saving faith to living faith. And and I'll tell you why. First of all, we look back in verse 16. Salvation for everyone who, what? Believes. What is belief? What is trust? It's faith. So I believe this is, first of all, a reference to saving faith. Why do you say living faith? Well, you look at the end of verse 6 to 17. Paul writes here, and, and I'll explain this when I get to it. This is a reference to Habakkuk 2.4. The just shall live by faith. So I believe it's from saving faith. So from faith to faith, from saving faith to living faith. Saving faith is not an event. It's a way of life. It is, it, my, when I accepted Christ as my personal Savior, it did life didn't stop. No, I continued to grow and mature and live by faith, by that faith that I put in Christ as my personal Savior. I was declared righteous. And so as I live out that faith, I should live, by God's grace, righteous. From saving faith to living faith. James chapter two verse eighteen. Someone will say to you, "You have faith, I have works." Show me your faith, and your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. That's living faith. Acts of righteousness are true, right, honest, honorable. The fruit of the spirit. Galatians chapter five verse twenty-two and twenty-three. Love, joy, peace, patience, faithfulness, self-discipline. 11, Hebrews chapter eleven verse thirty-nine. Person after person demonstrates their faith through their behavior. And it says, And all these having obtained a good testimony through faith. Saving faith is not an event, it's a way of life. As I've mentioned this before also. There's two great faith chapters in Scripture. There's Romans chapter 4, where it says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness, which simply means this Abraham believed God and he was justified. God declared him, him righteous. That's saving faith. And then there's Hebrews chapter 11, which we all know about. That's most common to us. That's living faith, where individual after individual demonstrated their faith through how they lived. So it's from faith to faith, from saving faith to living faith I'm not going to be dogmatic about it but I feel pretty f- or believe pretty firmly that this is what it's referenced to in Galatians 2 20 Paul writes I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me listen when I accepted Christ as my personal Savior every my world changed Paul never recovered from his conversion experience It totally changed him. So I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. From saving faith to living faith. To finally, the last phrase there, The righteous, or the just, shall live by faith. Now that, as he says, as it is written, that's from Habakkuk 2.4. So to really understand what is he talking about here in Romans 1.17, we need to go back and say, as it is written, what was, what was the situation Habakkuk was being confronted by? I'm not going to read the whole story to you. I'm just going to summarize the best I can. The prophet Habakkuk was bothered that wicked men were getting away with their wickedness. Jehovah, God, apparently tolerated such evils as the exploitation of the needy, strife, contentions, and violence. So the prophet begins to question God. I, I, and I, I don't want us to get a bad, bad idea of Habakkuk. Habakkuk had such a sense of justice, of rightness, that he, he, he honestly didn't understand. And so he, like we have the ability to do, he did it. He questioned God. He asked a very important question. And sometimes I think, oh, we can't ask those questions. God wants us to ask those questions. He wants to teach us. He wants us to learn. He wants to speak to us from his word. And so he asked the question. Why does Jehovah allow the wicked in Judah to oppress the righteous? God answered, "Evildoers will be punished. And then he adds, the Babylonians are coming. And Habakkuk, that shocked him. He didn't ask that. He really didn't want to know that. Because what that meant was, Those who are wicked are going to be punished, and I'm sending the Babylonians to do it. The Babylonians were wicked. They were ruthless. They were idolaters. And so, he asked this question. Why does Jehovah allow the Babylonians, those ruthless, wicked idolaters, to punish the Jews who at least are more righteous than these accursed foreigners? How can you do that, God? That just isn't right. Not fair. So he asks his question, a prayer, and he goes to a tower, a watchtower, and waits. Come on, God. You owe me an answer. And here's God's answer. Habakkuk, listen to me. The Babylonians will be punished. In fact, all sinners will be punished. But the righteous shall live by faith. So, what is he saying? You and I aren't supposed to worry about the wicked, we're to focus on God. The fear of the unknown is because we're focusing on the unknown and not on the God who controls the unknown. He who through faith is righteous shall live by faith. When you look around, it appears as if the wicked men are getting away with their wickedness. You might ask, why should you obey God, go to church, or, to, or do works of righteousness, when others are not, and they seem to be doing all right? God doesn't appear to be punishing them for their faith, faithlessness, nor blessing you for your humble obedience. You're looking at the wrong things. You're looking at other people, and you're measuring yourself by them. Like Habakkuk, it is your duties, my duty, our privilege to trust. It's our privilege to have faith. And to do this even when you aren't able to figure out the justice of Jehovah's doings. In humble, obedient, confident faith, you shall truly live. From saving faith to living faith. So now I had to figure out how do you bring this to a conclusion? Well, obviously the salvation message is here. If you're not saved, you not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're lost. But also there's a message that we need to live by faith. Not trusting in things, not neglecting responsibility. But to live by faith, the, the gospel for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Even as it has already been said, the just shall live by faith. So, this is how I'm going to conclude it. You thought that was a conclusion? This is not my favorite translation. I very rarely ever look at the NIV. I know there are many who have got comfort from it. It's just not me. I just don't care for that. But this is one instance, I think, that the NIV may have got, caught the essence of this verse. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Isn't that good? Not my favorite translation, but I'm saying I think they caught the essence of the verse. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. May your faith be strengthened today. Faith to faith. Hebrews chapter, Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we, as we come to you, As we, as we look at verse like this, like a, a verse like this, we, we feel so small. Not necessarily insignificant, but small thinking, small living. And again, to embrace and encounter the greatness you are righteous, and the goodness you justify us, you declare us righteous. Father, I pray as indeed that the impact of the Scripture may rest upon us and that we be responsive to it. We, we do not know what each may be struggling with. But there is is comfort, as we said, just as much as in the day when Paul wrote this, when it was, Martin Luther encountered it. And as we read and study through today, it is relevant. It is the same. It is true. If you're it heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here this morning, you say, Pastor Ken, I would like someone to show me from the Word of God how I can be saved. If it's a lady, we'll have a lady meet with you. If it's a man, be man. We certainly want to be private. You can just come up to me after the service and talk with me. But is there anyone like that here this morning? Secondly, you say, Pastor Ken, just pray for me, from saving faith to living faith. Is there anyone like that? Thank you, God. We know that you have promised your word will not return void. It will always carry out its intended purposes. We thank you, God, for the scriptures, the truth that has been revealed to us even today. In Christ's name we pray.